0: my name is Matthew Taylor I'm the chief executive of the RSA here in London while we have faced challenges before this one is different stay at home protect lives and then you will be doing your part what I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts.
1: It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future.
0: Renowned thinkers.
1: All you want is a hug. To be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs.
0: And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future responses to COVID-19. Well, I'm joined today on Bridges to the Future by David Wallace-Wells, the author of probably one of the most significant books of last year, The Uninhabitable Earth. And David came to the RSA to talk about that book. Hi, David, how are you?
1: I'm doing okay, all things considered. But, you know, as with everybody else, when you consider how much needs to be considered, it's pretty bleak out there. So some mix of okay, and sort of scared and depressed, I guess.
0: What impact has the last few months had on your own life and your own plans?
1: Well, it's meant that I've been doing a lot more uh, working from home, both in my day job as a magazine editor and in trying to write about the state of the world, typically through the climate lens. But especially since there have been so many sort of obvious echoes between the climate crisis and the pandemic, I found myself pretty quickly moving over to something like a full-time focus on COVID. And, you know, it's it's funny, I, I would have thought at the outset that having spent the last few years really staring sort of somewhat unflinchingly at the possibility of some quite apocalyptic near-term futures, that I would have been relatively well-prepared and well-equipped to make sense of one of them arriving much faster, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. And I found in certain ways, I probably am. But in other ways, I've found it just a sort of mind bending experience where one day, I'm, you know, I'm halfway persuaded by lockdown skeptics. And the other day, I'm fearful of a, a mass dying in the many millions across the world. And it's just been sort of hard to Calibrate my own intellectual perspective on the big picture of the story, and, and really try to figure out what that story is. It feels like every day there's some new bit of quite significant news, and it's often hard to know exactly how to sort of place that bit of news into the broader context. You know, as with climate, this is a sort of all-encompassing, all-touching story. But you know, we've had twenty, thirty depending on who you ask, maybe even longer years to sort of start to think through the shape of the climate crisis, even if most of us have spent those years looking away. With the pandemic, we're really just six months in. And so I think it's quite a bit harder to hold the whole thing in your head at once.
0: I'm really glad you said that, David, because I thought it was just me, the way that it's so hard to get a kind of grab on this. It's exactly as you say, that I found myself just this week, actually, having a day when I kind of was thinking, well, you know, actually, this still 250 people a day dying in the UK. And we loosened up a while ago, and those figures could go back up again. So you think about the kind of health issues, and then you look about what's happening in parts of Asia and the developing world. And then the next day, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, it's not a health crisis anymore. It's an economic crisis, because the economic ramifications are so massive and so huge. And then the next day, yesterday, I realized that what I was thinking about was a kind of regret that we might go back to normal and not take anything out of the fact that we have, amongst other things, in the words of President Emmanuel Macron, it seems to have been the greatest show of solidarity humanity has ever seen in terms of the willingness of most people to alter their lives and to throw the economy up in the air in order to kind of defend each other from the health risks. So I entirely share your intellectual disorientation.
1: You know, I had a lot of Macron's perspective at the outset. I was sort of amazed, particularly, again, coming at this story from climate, I was really amazed to see how universal and how quickly some of these precautions came into being, not in a directly coordinated way, not from a central authority, but every single nation, first in the Northern Hemisphere and then spreading into the Southern Hemisphere, undergoing, as you say, these kind of unprecedented economic self-policing and social self-policing, you know, the real breakup of just about every non-familial aspect of every individual's life on the northern half of the planet. This is really a kind of incredible performance, especially to be undertaken in the space of just a month or six weeks from the time that most of those people first heard about this threat. And when you realize how much more dramatic that action is than anything that has been undertaken to address climate change over a much longer time scale, it truly is astonishing. On the other hand, I think in a lot of places, maybe the UK and the US most dramatically, we've really bungled that um, that prep. The UK has done a bit more building out of you know contact tracing and, and mass testing than the US has, but even so, the UK I think has you know sort of failed the, the basic test there. And in the US, the failure is even more dramatic. I mean, we are practically speaking proceeding as though the pandemic is behind us when depending on how you measure at least 90% maybe 95% of the country's population has not even been exposed to the disease it may be the case that thanks to seasonal effects and some amounts of you know social distancing and mask wearing and that sort of thing we're in a relatively safer place than we were a few months ago but it's not at all the case that the bulk of this pandemic has passed. It's only that we are now behaving as though it has. And we don't know yet exactly how that will play out. The science is still a little unclear. But I think the best rule of thumb, which is a quite scary one, is that you know scientists say that we're not going to reach herd immunity until at least 60% of the population has been exposed, which means even if you take a place like New York City, which has been really massively disrupted and affected with many thousands of people dying, many more being gravely ill. Nevertheless, the city is less than halfway to that herd immunity mark, which means by that measure, at least, we're less than halfway through the pandemic. And yet we have our governor and our mayor celebrating as though we've put it all behind us. I think there's a real danger with COVID as there is with climate, that we respond to some of these onrushing threats primarily by normalizing them rather than adapting to them or adjusting to them. And you know, you said in the UK, the daily death toll is about 250. In the US, it's considerably higher. We're at about 800 or 900. And in certain parts of the country, the disease is really starting to get out of control. In Texas, in Nevada, in Arizona, in California, these are all states where the problems were relatively small six weeks ago and are now growing quite dramatically in quite scary ways. And yet the public response in even those states isn't nearly as rapid or dramatic as we saw three months ago. And I worry that that is really the pattern of normalization as we see it play out with almost every new threat. We have an immediate fear-based response that may even be an overreaction, but which sort of prevents us from dealing rationally and with real attention in a sustained way, because it sort of burns through our capacity to make dramatic changes such that We're all sort of over it now. I mean, my mother-in-law said to me yesterday, I'm over it. You know, she's 71 years old. She's relatively healthy, but, you know, she's not an invulnerable member of the population. But after four months of living in quarantine, she's basically over it. And I think that that's unfortunately the perspective of not just most of the population at large, but also many of our leaders who seem, at least in the U.S., or maybe most conspicuously in the U.S., just ready to move on.
0: You know, I'd love to talk to you more about this, but we've taken up so much time because this is so interesting. I haven't asked the question that this podcast is supposed to revolve around, so I'm going to ask it now. David Wallace-Wells, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic?
1: Well, I think there's real potential for this to reorient our basic perspective on the planet and one another. I mean, I think like climate change, one of the major lessons of the coronavirus pandemic is that we all live within nature. We may feel that modern life protects us against natural threats, but in fact, that is an illusion. Modern life can be a tool, can help us, but it is not a guarantee of safety or security. In fact, the more that we build out what we think of as the infrastructure of the modern world, the more that we sort of antagonize the natural systems of the planet and produce outcomes like the one that we're living through now. Now, the COVID-19 is not a direct result of climate change at all, at least as far as we understand its its origin story. But the more that we disrupt the natural ecosystems of the planet, the more we will see pandemics like this. Because, you know, when animal species and viruses and bacteria are disrupted from their natural ecosystems, that's when disease can get out of control. I think that we could conceivably learn a kind of profound existential lesson from this. I think we could also learn the related lesson that it's better to take dramatic action very quickly rather than wait until the threats have grown so large that they are unavoidable. You know, there have been studies showing that if the Chinese locked down a few weeks earlier, they could have prevented 95% of all cases in their country and maybe even prevented the disease from spreading. Similar studies have found the same thing in other countries, the US and the UK, that delay has cost really an incalculable and horrifying loss of life. I am inspired by the kind of solidarity that you mentioned, especially that was exhibited at the beginning of the pandemic when people were seemed willing to forego, and, and still, if you trust the polls, are willing to forego an enormous amount in order to protect themselves and one another. Now, I think it's an open question how much of our willingness to Endure conditions of lockdown, how much of that willingness is produced by narrow self-interest, you know, I don't want to get sick, I don't want to be infected, even when that is somewhat irrational, because many of the people who are feeling that way are, are young and at relatively low risk, and how much of it is an expression of real solidarity. On the other hand, when you think about it as a global gesture, you know, the distinction is less relevant because we are going through this incredible experience together. And as a result, we have protected one another incredibly efficiently. There was a paper that just came out from some economists in the US that found that, you know, tens of millions of cases have been prevented by lockdown measures already with the number of lives saved in, I think, the single digits millions, which is a really astonishing achievement. And especially as someone who's concerned about climate change and how we respond to that threat in the future, these are all quite encouraging signs. We are learning that we are vulnerable. We are discovering a capacity within ourselves and our communities that will allow us to protect ourselves against genuinely terrifying existential risks.
0: That's what I want to believe as well. The counter thought is that when we finally get out of this, people will say, oh, we've had enough of existential risks for a couple of years you know i've got a friend who runs a popular radio program and he's a comedian and he got a good laugh two weeks into the crisis by simply saying not now greta and there was this kind of sense of you know hey enough of the existential risks and the problem is you know if we had a lot of time maybe we could let people have a couple of years of getting the economy back on its feet and living normal life but i don't need to say to you we don't have those couple of years so tell us about your fear as well
1: Well, I have basically the same fear, although I would put it in a slightly different way. And that is not about the sort of psychological or emotional capacity of the public. It's about our political capacity for investment and focus. You know, that is to say that we will be getting through this crisis to the extent that we get through it with a basically unprecedented amount of public focus on the disease and the economic fallout from the shutdowns that we've come to feel are necessary. You know, I know the U.S. case best, but in the U.S., we've already passed stimulus measures to try to keep the economy afloat in the neighborhood of $3 trillion dollars. Now, the stimulus package that the US passed in the aftermath of the Great Recession in 2008 2009 was about 800 billion. So, we're talking about having already tripled or quadrupled the amount of public spending that's gone into dealing with this crisis. We're probably going to do considerably more even between now and the November election. And the chances are, especially listening to the way that Joe Biden has talked about. What's necessary in the aftermath of this disease over the last month or two is that a democratic administration will be even more aggressive come January, depending on what the makeup of the legislature is and what kind of spending is possible. Now, all of that means that we are going to be making an absolutely massive expenditure of literal capital and of political capital in order to allow ourselves to get through this. And I worry that even though our politics about deficit spending, those politics have changed a lot over the last decade, that they haven't changed fast enough to allow following up this incredible unprecedented investment in COVID stimulus, following that up with an unprecedented, even larger investment in climate spending. And that's not just a matter of Deficit hawks and austerity, although that's a part of it, it's also connected to the political capacity of our systems to really undertake large scale debates and conversations about what kinds of interventions are necessary. And I guess that echoes a little bit what you were saying, although I'm more worried about it at the level of policy leaders and less worried about it at the level of individuals. You know, the reason that I've started over the last week or two to feel a little bit more hopeful on that point is that I think you see in the U.S. especially with the mass protests against police brutality and more generally against sort of systemic American racism, I think you're starting to see what looks like a quite dramatic generational shift in the scope and landscape of our politics more generally. Up until six months ago, Black Lives Matter was a movement that was supported by a relatively small minority of the American public. It wasn't even supported really by a majority of American liberals. And yet, over the course of a few weeks, public support for that has moved wildly high, such that, you know, now even Conservative Republican lawmakers are at least feeling obligated to pay lip service to sort of the the excesses that we've seen in, in recent months, but also recent years. I think you see similar things when you look at polling about deficit spending, for instance. I think you see a real watershed in the perspective of conventional economic wisdom about what kinds of public investment are necessary. And I think you see that, you know, down to polling about public opinion about climate change, where, you know, five years ago, climate change was a quite divisive issue in the US. It may not have been as divisive in the UK or the EU, but still somewhat divisive with a sort of significant minority opposed or skeptical of any real climate action. You really don't see that in those polls anymore at all. And while our politics hasn't yet responded in kind and hasn't embraced the sort of overwhelming consensus about the necessity of, say, aggressive climate action. I think you're starting to see, especially in these protests in the U.S., but even in the way that they've spread across the world, in a moment of incredible health anxiety, you're starting to see something like the changing of the guard generationally with regard to what we expect from our politics and what we demand from our politics so that all of these things that we used to take for granted as permanent features and, in many cases, permanent obstacles to political change simply seem to be, at the very least, less decisive than they were even six months ago, certainly 10 years ago. And, you know, again, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself by going back to these protests, but it really did used to be the case that you couldn't get anywhere meaningful, even in like a democratic context, by talking about radical police reform, that voters were simply too scared about crime and too supportive of the police To embrace any kind of meaningful change to the way those cops operated, that's shifted so dramatically that we're now talking literally major metropolises in the U.S. have passed binding legislation to dismantle their police forces. Now, of course, they're going to rebuild something like a police force in its place. But we're talking about really, really dramatic change that really did not seem possible even just a few months ago. And I think with COVID and also with climate, we are starting to see that Sort of changeover, which could allow some quite expansive public action in the relatively near future. Now, I'm not sure I would bet on it. I think that there are a lot of complications and challenges. Old habits die hard. And in general, our politics has been both in the UK and the US and truthfully all across Europe less comfortable making the kinds of investments that we'll need to deal with climate change than scientists say is necessary. And yet, I do feel like things are moving much more quickly than I would have thought was possible, not all that long ago. And I think we have to, to the extent that we, you know, we're trying to fight for a a sort of a hopeful future. I think we have to do what we can to feel inspired by that movement, push for more, but still feel inspired by it.
0: So that's fascinating. And as you say, hopeful in terms of the capacity of the public to collectively shift their view and act together and force those in authority to rethink. But what about one of the other big barriers to the action that your book, The Uninhabitable Earth, made us realize was absolutely essential and absolutely urgent? And that is kind of national sovereignty versus global collaboration. And, you know, one of the things that has been a characteristic of the response to COVID has broadly been that countries have operated on their own, putting up their borders, believing that really the only responsibilities they have have been to their own citizens. Now, I think if you look out globally on what's happening on climate, it's a complicated picture. I mean, we saw a couple of days ago, I think, the UN launching its race to zero with an incredibly impressive list of Cities and nations and corporations and trade unions and NGOs signing up to you know what is a radical target of net zero emissions by 2050, many of them 2040, some of them even 2030. And then we've got your president, and then we've got the imponderable of China. So it kind of feels as though we could reach that tipping point where the world does what it has to do. But what do you think, David? Stands in the way of that point?
1: I would say a couple of things. I mean, I think that the geopolitics of climate are incredibly complicated and really challenging. And before even getting to climate, I think that one complicating and I think worrisome aspect of the global response to COVID has been the way that China has played this, which is to say, I think, you know, first of all, they've implemented even more aggressive domestic surveillance and crackdowns. They've changed their relationship to Hong Kong in a way that's quite concerning, especially given how large recent protests were there. They've continued to punish and police the Uyghur population in Xinjiang. On top of which, because so many nations in the West are retreated into their own corners, worrying about their own populations and worrying also about you know, about budget deficits, I think that China is positioning itself as a kind of provider of infrastructure and support all around the world That nations like the U.S. used to provide. Now, that project was well underway before COVID with their Belt and Road Initiative, where they're basically building all of the infrastructure of the rest of Asia and much of sub-Saharan Africa in ways that really indebt most of those countries to China, but also bring them closer into their economic fold. But I think that the coronavirus crisis has really accelerated that in part because the main rival for that kind of leadership, the U.S., has so bungled the disease And so completely failed to inspire, you know, the rest of the world with the wisdom of its own leadership. I mean, I think, you know, in general on the disease, I think that almost every nation and every international organization has sort of failed the test to some degree, although many countries quickly got on track and managed to pull themselves out of true crisis into something like a manageable, difficult state. And that is really what China managed to do as well. You know, so in general, one of the big complications and concerns I have coming out of this crisis is that China is not just emboldened and empowered, it's also been more authoritarian. And that is an ugly and scary combination. Whereas the nations of the world that might provide a balance have looked weak as a result, the U.S. in particular. On climate, you know, I remain quite worried about the Chinese path. And I think it's sort of sad and scary to say that the future of the planet's climate really does depend to a degree that makes most of us in the West uncomfortable, not just on what China does, but literally on what Xi Jinping himself decides. China is today responsible its domestic emissions productions are responsible for about 28% of the world's emissions. When you count all the work they're doing around the rest of the world, it grows beyond that. And that share is going to grow over the next decade or so. The U.S. is in second place. They're responsible for about 15% of global emissions. That share is going to fall. The share of Western Europe is falling too. And the main determinant of the future planet of the climate is you know, what China does. And I don't know what we can hope for from them. The lesson of the past few years is that they've been expanding their green capacity alongside expanding dirty energy. And their response to the pandemic has basically illustrated the same uncomfortable dynamic where, you know, at first they were quite aggressive in shutting down their industrial activity, their air pollution cleared up quite quickly, but they're back up to polluting just as much as they were before the pandemic began. And in fact, are exploring ways to open up more coal capacity in particular as a way of kickstarting their economy. All of that is quite scary. On the other hand, you know, I think you can be inspired by how the world as a whole, though disorganized and in a lot of ways incoherent in its response viewed from a distance, has managed to do quite well, all things considered, in protecting the population from a totally new disease that nobody had ever heard of Until December. We didn't need the UN playing an aggressive role and dictating to the rest of the world. We didn't need Donald Trump or the US or Xi Jinping or China shaking a stick at the other nations of the world to get them to fall into line. Just about everybody did it on their own out of a sense of their own self-interest. In the US, there's a sort of a long-standing often tangential talking point among conservatives who point to what, you know, what's called the federal structure of our government and want states to experiment rather than having national policies. That's mostly a way of fighting um, government activity overall, but there is some wisdom in taking an experimental approach, in particular when you notice, you know, with the pandemic crisis, like the WHO was saying in January that there was no asymptomatic transmission. They were saying in February that you didn't need to wear masks. Many public health authorities were saying in April that there was no seasonal effect or there was no differential between how infectious the disease was indoors versus outdoors. Now, if everybody had embraced all that guidance across the world universally, we'd actually be in a much worse place than we are. Thankfully, Many of the nations of Asia who had dealt with SARS and MERS earlier knew that mask use was useful and embraced it, whatever the WHO said. You know, we knew coming out of China that there was a dramatic age skew, and some countries took that quite seriously, protecting their most vulnerable citizens. Unfortunately, we didn't do that really in the US, and in fact, didn't do it throughout much of Europe. But we have now, in parts of the world, realized and made use of the fact that you know, outdoor transmission is so much rarer than indoor transmission, and especially heading into the summer of the Northern Hemisphere, that means that we can do a lot more than we thought was possible a few months ago. So if we had subjected ourselves globally to a single piece of pandemic advice or a single set or a single authority, we'd actually be in a much worse position now than we are having improvised our way towards a sort of best practices approach, pulling some lessons from South Korea some lessons from taiwan some lessons from germany etc and it may be the case that we can use that template on climate now there are two last points i want to make about this the first is the uncoordinated but universal global response is a reflection of just how scared we all are about our health when it becomes threatened health is something that we fear immediately personally and we're willing to take quite dramatic action against health threats that's important to keep in mind because one really underutilized messaging approach to climate is the public health concerns. You know, Globally, 9 million people are dying every year, according to The Lancet, from air pollution produced by the burning of fossil fuels. And many more people than those 9 million are suffering from that air pollution, from the burning of fossil fuels. If we focused our messaging on climate, Even just a little bit on those public health costs, I think the payoff would be enormous, in part because it was to inspire people to take more aggressive action, but in part because taking action on public health grounds is a better sell at the national level and at the local level than making a pitch based on carbon emissions. And I say that because... If the UK totally zeros out on carbon, the benefits of that decarbonization are distributed globally, even though the costs of decarbonizing are concentrated in the UK. But if the UK closes all of its coal plants, and I think you're on your second or third month now without using any coal, which is unprecedented. If the UK totally retires all of its use of coal, the public health benefits of that of retiring that coal production are all concentrated within the UK borders. And as a result there's a much stronger incentive for nations and even local communities to take action against fossil fuel infrastructure. So that's one big thing, but secondarily, you know I think it suggests what anyone who has been following negotiations about climate over the last few years already knows, which is that the UN system which requires the sign-off of every single nation on the planet, is probably not the best one. If it required every nation of the world to sign off on a COVID response policy, probably we would have done it very ineffectively and relatively inefficiently. We did things much more quickly because those responses were undertaken at the national level. And the key with climate is to try to inspire that kind of competition, that experimental competition, without imposing a one-size-fits-all model on the world. Now how exactly to do that it's a complicated question. I do think that if you look at the fallout from the Paris accords where no major industrial nation in the world is on track to meet its commitments under Paris, I think we can say with some certainty that the UN model is not working. The economist William Nordhaus who won the Nobel Prize in 2018, he's a little bit of a complicated figure for climate activists, but he's suggested replacing the UN or Paris approach with something like a WTO for climate change where a band of nations who wanted to take action could incentivize more nations to join them by offering them the benefits of trade deals and maybe even the free exchange of IP in exchange for meeting climate goals and could also punish nations for behaving poorly when it came to climate in much the same way that the WTO can impose sanctions on other nations of the world. Another model that I've thought a lot about is the nuclear non-proliferation agreements um, that the US and the Soviet Union had reached in the 1980s rival superpowers, but sort of nominally aligned on the goal of, of reducing the amount of existential risk on the planet. Those two nations came together and didn't totally solve the problem of nukes, but made a real difference in just how many of them were circulating. I think today you could sort of imagine a similar approach being taken to climate between the US and China. Of course, it would require a real change of leadership in Washington and a kind of change of, of mindset in Beijing. But I think that if you were to imagine, say, a Joe Biden presidency with a newly climate-focused Xi Jinping, you could start to see a partnership there that could, if not dictate then inspire the rest of the world to follow suit. I don't know exactly which path forward is required, but I do think that the aftermath of the Paris Accords combined with what we've learned from the COVID crisis suggests that we should be more open to less centralized approaches to climate so long as we can keep ourselves on track to meeting goals. One last thing I would throw on is just how we define success here. Because the Paris Accords called for the world to do everything we could To avoid two degrees of warming. A recent paper I read suggested that we have a 0.03% chance of meeting those goals. It was sort of focused on what the re-election of Trump would mean, and they estimated that if Trump were re-elected, the global chances for meeting the goals of Paris would fall to 0.01%, which means practically speaking, we are not going to avoid two degrees of warming. And two degrees of warming just to give your listeners a sense, would mean 150 million people dying of air pollution. It would mean storms that used to hit once every century would hit every year. It would mean that parts of the planet that are today home to one and a half billion people would be uninhabitable. And it would mean basically that we'd be locking in the permanent loss of all the Arctic and Antarctic ice sheets, which would take centuries to melt, but over time would produce 80 meters of sea level rise, which is enough to drown two-thirds of the world's major cities if we didn't move them, which we'd probably have to. That is basically a best-case scenario. So when we talk about taking action on climate, I think it's important to keep in mind that in almost no circumstance are we going to be able to preserve the climate of our grandparents or even our climate. Things are going to be getting considerably hotter and how we respond to that world, how we design our societies so that we can live relatively comfortably in that world is probably going to be as much about adaptation as it is about mitigation. That is as much about how we respond to and protect ourselves given these new threats as it is about how quickly we can reduce our carbon emissions. Reducing carbon emissions is absolutely essential. We need to do that and get it all the way to zero to stop the planet's heating at any temperature level, even a hellish one. But I think we also have to start thinking about what it will mean to live in a future defined by at least two degrees Celsius of warming. And the truth is, it's quite, quite horrifying.
0: Well, anybody who has just listened to what you've said, David, and questions it or wants to know more about it, I strongly recommend that they read your book the uninhabitable earth and and I'm very grateful to you for covering the issues that we've covered. We've looked at risk and the way in which people understand or respond to risk. We've looked at solidarity we've looked at mobilisation we've looked at perhaps more realistic ways in which the world might be able to operate not on the basis of a single plan but by each country doing what is necessary or some countries taking the lead Uh, it's been really valuable having the conversation with you david thank you so much for giving us your time
1: my pleasure great to talk to you thanks for having me
0: thank you that's it for this episode of bridges to the future but we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon if you've enjoyed this podcast please tell someone about it and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app and that's not it The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig
1: Templeton-Smith.